Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Thank you both Angie and Matt for leading us in worship. They do so faithfully every week. Uh, leading us in song, and um, we are we are so fortunate to have uh, people who can sing, uh, because if not, it would be me doing it, and you don't want that. And so, um, and so, I'm very thankful for them. Just their their heart, not just not just their ability, but their heart and the uh, their their longing to lead us into worship, to lead us to to look at Jesus and behold Jesus every week. So, Matt and Angie, thank you uh, for doing that this week. Um, again, my name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor here at City in a Hill. If you're joining us online, we do apologize for uh, the technical difficulties this morning, but we hope that you're able to uh, follow along with us. Um, our vision as a church is that every person from every culture would experience the gospel. And this really is undergirded by our values that we wanna see people experience the gospel personally, we wanna see them experience it corporately, and then also in our world. And so um, our value of gospel uh, is the idea that we experience the gospel personally, that Jesus came, he lived the life we couldn't live, he died on the cross in our place, dying the death we deserve, and rose again so that anyone can have right relationship with God through trusting in Christ. And so we'd invite anyone who's not done that to do so. Um, secondly, corporately, we experience the gospel as a community. Uh, and so we believe that the way that we grow best isn't through relationships with other people centered around Jesus. And this is not just about friendship. It's not just about affinity, um, because I believe if you start with friendship, you rarely get community. But if you start with community and, a, and the idea that we're helping each other grow, you most often get friendship. And so we start with the idea of community before friendship and friendship always blossoms. And then lastly, mission. We believe that God is wanting our world to experience the gospel. So we want to live life shaped by what Jesus has done for us, making our city a better place, taking the gospel to the ends of the nations with the hope that anyone can trust in him. And so if you're new with us, we'd love for you to connect either via the uh, connect card in the seat. Um, you can fill that out, drop it uh, um, uh, in the basket that comes by later, or you can uh, go to coahforesthills.org slash connect if you'd like to do that digitally. Uh, a few announcements before we jump into the text. Uh, September 1st is coming. Um, usually we will do what's called the big move, which, you know, if you've been in Boston long enough, you've seen uh, everybody move on September 1st and it is mass chaos and there are U-Haul trucks everywhere. Um, we want, uh, we try to usually step in and help with that, uh, but due to rising COVID numbers, we decided, hey, this year, let's not do this corporately, um, but really want to encourage you, if you see someone on your street, if you see a U-Haul van or a Penske truck or whatever it might be, if you see that on your street, just go over for five or 10 minutes, lend a hand, say hello, invite someone over for coffee or for dinner, uh, maybe invite them to church. We're actually going to give you a guide this coming week of just some practical helps that you can take, um, some practical steps you can take to invite, uh, kind of engage your neighbors in this very uh, key time in our city. Uh, and so I encourage you to do that. Um, this is the last week of our men's and women's groups uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday. We're going to take about a three-week break or so, uh, and then we are going to jump back into our regular rhythm of community groups this fall. That's going to be happening in September, mid to late September. We're going to have some community group signups because there will be some new groups. Um, we'll have some, um, some signups uh, coming in the first couple weeks of September. Uh, and also just be looking out for a fall calendar coming up this next week to kind of give you the landscape of what the rest of the year is going to look like. Uh, now, it, the world we live in 
is fundamentally different than it was 30 to 40 years ago. Now, I know every generation says that. Every group of uh, people say that. They look at the world we live in and say, it's just not the way that it used to be. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad. It's just different. Uh, and, And we often see this when it comes to music. Every generation thinks the music that they grew up with is the best music, right? And you know it's a sign you're starting to get old when you start seeing new music and go, this music's not as good as music was when I was growing up. But if we're all honest with ourselves, and we, we, you know, we, we look honestly at the music of our upbringing, very rarely um, does, does the music stand up, right? Think about the 90s, right? Think about the, the, the 90s and the music in the 90s. Um, there's some pretty rough songs in the 90s. I grew up uh, as, as a teenager in the 90s thinking that was the best, uh, the best uh, thing possible. But we had songs like I'm Too Sexy by a band called Right Said Fred, okay? Undeniably a terrible song. Achy Breaky Heart came out in the early 90s. Limp Biscuit did a cover of the song Faith by George Michael. There was some bad music in the 90s. Every generation experiences these, these shifts that happen over time. And sometimes they're smaller shifts. Uh, the shift from radio to TV, uh, the shift from a horse to a car. Those are, those are big shifts, but they're, they're really just more shifts in how you get information and how you get around But sometimes those shifts are really huge. Even thinking about the idea of a car, um, uh, uh, getting a car was a response to change. Industrialization, globalization in our world, it became a bigger place. People started moving around and there was just this need to be able to go further, faster. But sometimes a change or or an invention or, or something new coming on the scene is a catalyst for bigger change. So think about the printing press. Prior to the the printing press, the only way that you could read the Bible is if someone stood up here and read it to you. But after the printing press was was made, anyone at any point could read that book and books and letters could move quickly around the world. The entire way that we live changed. Mark Sayers is a pastor in Melbourne, Australia. And he's one of these people who just kind of seems to have their finger on the pulse of culture. And he talked about what the world was really like prior to the 1700s. He said it was generally a fairly small world. And usually you lived and you died in the same place. You lived in a place, you grew up there, you probably uh, apprenticed under your parents to do some sort of job. Um, You married somebody from that same town um, and and you, you died in that place. And so churches tended to work off a parish model. The parish model was the idea that not only was the pastor the pastor to a local congregation, but really anybody inside that geographic region was kind of part of the church. It was the responsibility of the church to care for those people. But as the Industrial Revolution kicked off in the 1700s, and 1800s, there was this rapid expanse of information and technology and people started to move around a little bit. And when something like this happens, it creates disruption. It creates disruption in the way that we do life. And even within the church, it creates disruption, but it also creates opportunity. John Wesley said that, he said, the world is my parish. Responding to this idea of globalization and things moving faster, moving further, he said, I see an opportunity for the gospel to go further than just a single local parish, but to the entire world. In fact, I don't think it's a coincidence that the modern missions movement kicked off in the middle of the Industrial Revolution. The world became a bigger place, and so the gospel went further Lemuel Haynes, who was a black pastor and missionary, he was actually um, lived here in New England, in Massachusetts, fought in the Revolutionary War. Was a, he was a pastor 
right here in Massachusetts, was uh, the first black pastor to lead an all-white congregation in, uh, in the Americas, actually kicked off the missionary revolution by going to the far-off country of Vermont and uh, starting missions work there. William Carey, who went to India, rode the cultural wave of, at a time of great disruption. And so Mark Sayers goes on to talk about how he thinks we're in the middle of another monumental shift. We're in the middle of a shift that is moving from a world that is industrialized, that is top down to a world that's networked, where people and information is networked. It's much, a much flatter world. And he says that we see this in something like information. It used to be that you got information from the top down. If you wanted to learn about news, you turn on the five o'clock news, you watched Walter Cronkite, and he told you what the truth was. He told you what news was. In fact, if you ever watched the movie Anchorman, they mock that. They mock this idea that this one figure is the person who gives everybody the news. But now we have hashtags and news moves lightning fast. In fact, back in 2009, uh, US Airways flight 1549 crashed into the Hudson. And before any news agency could do anything, an onlooker tweeted, I just watched a plane crash in the Hudson 15 minutes before anybody else could. Information is moving quickly, but it also leads to a lot of misinformation and disinformation. We see the way that power has shifted and changed. Power uh, used to be within countries. Now it feels like power is within companies. Apple has more cash on hand, cash on hand, than two-thirds of the countries in the world produce in a single year. And there's positives to this idea of power being distributed a little more because we see injustice being exposed. It's not just one group of people has a hold on power, but the truth gets out there. But the negative aspect of this is that oftentimes we begin to start tearing things down in our culture, in our society with no clear vision of what we need to build back up. And this leads us to a really unstable world that we live in because there's this constant bombardment of information and it's making us anxious. That's why we do what uh, critics are calling doom scrolling. It's why we get on Twitter or Facebook and we keep scrolling and we keep scrolling, that automatic refresh because there's more information, there's a new dopamine hit, you keep moving, you keep going, and we get anxious because there's just too much information and too much news and too much brokenness out there for us to control. It feels unstable because we see intense polarization in our world. Where it used to be that maybe the, this country and this country were at odds with each other, or maybe this region and this region of our own country were at odds, you can be sitting across the dinner table from somebody and be on completely different wavelengths. And we feel the strain of this changing world and it's disorienting and it's destabilizing. We're trying to figure out how do I operate inside of this new normal? But what if this feeling of being upside down and this feeling of being torn apart is actually good for us? What if this is the precursor to a move of God in and through us in this time and in this place? James Burns, uh, over a century ago in 1909, was writing about the idea of revival. And he said, the first seed of revival is dissatisfaction. That we become dissatisfied with the way things are because these shifts in our culture, they shake us and they cause us to test everything that we believe and not just about religion, but about the world itself. And it leaves us desperately wanting for better and wanting for more. And we see that the apostle Paul in Romans says something very similar when he says that creation is groaning for redemption. 
And Burns goes on and says that this is actually right when God tends to move because he says faith is like a tide that goes in and out. And just when it seems to have gone out, it comes back with force. In times when faith seems least likely is when it comes alive most. And I believe that God is doing something in our world. I think he's doing something in our church. He's wanting to do something in us by inviting us to seek renewal. Tim Keller calls this gospel renewal a life-changing recovery of the gospel. And I believe this is something that we're always being invited to, that revival and renewal are very similar. But when we think of the idea of revival, we think of generational change. We think first or second great awakening, which happened right here in New England. It's all thousands and millions of people come to faith in Christ. But we're being invited to daily renewal with God where he brings our focus back to our sin and our, back to God's grace and the forgiveness that we can have through Jesus, not just on an intellectual level, but that we would experience this deeply in our souls and it would change us to more deeply and fully know Jesus and love him and be satisfied by him. See, renewal happens when we apply the gospel, what Jesus did on the cross for us, when we apply the gospel to everything all things start to be made new because the good news makes all things new and it sets everything right. And often we wanna change the world, but we often get, the, we get the, or, the, the order wrong. We think if we can just change the world, then we're gonna be okay and then I'm gonna be okay. But actually we see the way that renewal works and we're gonna be starting a three-week series on renewal today. Uh, we see the way that renewal works is renewal and revival starts in us. It always starts inside of us and then God works through us. So today we're gonna to be talking about personal renewal. Next week, we're gonna be talking about church renewal. And then we're gonna be talking about city renewal in two weeks. And we have to get this order right because God always works in people before he works through them. And the question I want each of us to roll around with today and wrestle with is what does God need to do in me? What does God need to make new in my life? And we see that God meets people in disorienting places in Jeremiah chapter 31. We see a people who their lives have been turned upside down. They're disenfranchised with life. They've lost all hope. And we see two things from this text today about the idea of renewal. Firstly, we see the promise of renewal. And secondly, the practice of renewal. So let's unpack that idea of the promise of renewal. A little bit of background about the, the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet um, he was not a bullfrog. If you listen to 70s music, going back to the first part, um, Jeremiah was a prophet. Uh, he was writing during the fall of the nation of Judah. Judah and Israel had split apart at this point. Israel has fallen. Judah is about to fall. Uh, and, and this is after, this is not just like one bad decision. It's not like they just messed up once. This is after centuries of rebellion and idol worship and sin. They kept going further down the spiral. And they thought their biggest threat was Assyria. Babylon ends up taking over and destroying Assyria, taking over their lands. And in the process of all of this, Jeremiah has been warning them and warning and warning them and Judah falls and the people are exiled. The temple is destroyed. And Jeremiah is often referred to as the weeping prophet because nobody listened. No one listened. 
It was bitter to see everything around him fall apart. And he's watching as his world decays. He's watching as other people are being hurt by injustice. He's watching as people continue to turn to idol worship. And in the midst of all of this doom and gloom, we see this beautiful promise of better days in verse 25 when he says, for I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. This is soul level renewal. The word satisfy literally means to refill what is empty. They they were all in a place of of spiritual brokenness and and spiritual emptiness. That they had rejected uh, being filled from the wells of God and gone to broken cisterns. They They were needed to be filled again. They felt the weariness and the languishing of their own sin. A lot of this was because of their choices. They had led themselves to this place because of their poor choices, their own rebellion, their own idol worship. But also, it wasn't always that. It was the brokenness of the world around them. They had experienced the sins of others against them. And Jeremiah, through Jeremiah, the Lord is saying, I will refill you, I will restore you, and I will renew you. And then this was not an empty promise. This was not like, you know, when you're consoling a crying child saying, you know, there, there, it's going to be okay. This was a promise with roots. This is a promise that had teeth. It was this barefaced recognition that, you know what, it's not okay. This this is not okay, but it's going to be okay. I'm going to make it okay. Many of you may find yourself in a similar place right now where you're looking out at the world around you and it seems like everything is different than you expected and falling apart and it's disorienting. And just my question for you this morning is, how is your soul right now? How is, how is your heart? You know, coming out of the, the COVID lockdown, the, the most common response I got from that question is, I'm exhausted. And, and you think about that and go, man, like how are we so tired when we haven't done anything for a year and a half, we have watched everything on Netflix from Tiger King to Making a Murder to whatever we watched. We've done everything. We've gotten, uh, for some of us, we've, we said, you know, I'm introverted and I just want to stay home and I don't want to see people. And I've, gotten, I've gotten what my heart desires. How are we so tired? It's because the world around us is changing and shaping us into something that we never thought we wanted it to be. Some of us know this sense of lostness, the sense of being overwhelmed. And maybe it's the consequences of your own sin. Maybe it's just the world feels heavy. But like here, God gives a promise that he will meet us in that and be faithful to us and refill us and make us new. Philip Ryken talks about nine comforts that God gives in Jeremiah chapter 31, a little bit before our text this morning. And I'm not gonna read every single one of these, but these are the, or I'm sorry, I'm not gonna unpack every single one of these, but these are these ideas of what renewal looks like. So I'm gonna hit these quickly. We see that there's gonna be renewed worship. They were gonna be able to worship God again that God was going to answer their prayers. At the end of verse seven, he says, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. They've been crying out this prayer for so long and he's saying God will eventually answer that prayer. You have a God who's gonna preserve and keep you, a God who will allow you to return. Again, they've been in exile. He said, one day you're gonna get back to the land that I promised you. That there will be forgiveness for your sins, that you, I will guide you, I will be a good shepherd to you, uh, that I will ransom and redeem you, and I will provide for you. 
So there's all these promises sowed in the midst of all of this destruction around him. And in verse 26, I love the way that Jeremiah responds. Jeremiah says, at this I awoke and looked and my sleep was pleasant to me. He wakes up apparently from a vision or from a dream. He sees all that God's gonna do. He looks at his life. It hasn't changed, but he slept well. He could rest. His circumstances didn't change, but his heart did. His heart toward what God was going to do changed because he believed that God could even be faithful here. And he rested in the promise that God was going to replenish and renew him. It's like Hetty Lauman in her incredible commentary on, uh, on Jeremiah. She says, God will turn all misery into hope. But our circumstances can make us forget that God is good. They can make us forget what matters most. I don't know if you ever watched the movie Hook uh, in the early 90s. It was, it was Peter Pan. He grew up and he had kids. He had a kid named Jack and a kid named Maggie. Peter Pan forgets um, what, it, what it's like to be Peter Pan. He's now an accountant. And uh, Hook steals his children, takes them to Neverland. And in this interaction between Captain Hook and Jack and Maggie, uh, Jack is beginning to forget about home. And Maggie is yelling out, think of a way to run home. Run home. See, Jeremiah remembers that God is still faithful, so renewal begins when you remember that the gospel is a way home. It's an invitation to remember who God is and what he's done. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, we see two truths really clearly that undergird and fuel renewal and make us aware of the renewal that we need. We're made aware of the fact that we are that sinful. The Bible doesn't hide how sinful we are, right? The Bible is, is no holds, bars, it doesn't pull punches. It shows the ugliness of what it means to be human. But Philip Ryken says that human beings are thinking most clearly and most sensibly when they recognize how sinful they are. When we sin and when we get a recognition that we have sinned, our eyes get opened up for a few minutes. When we realize how much we've messed up, we have a moment of clarity. It's kind of jolting to our senses. And in that moment, one half of the gospel becomes clear. We are that sinful. And we feel the guilt. We feel the shame. We feel the fear of being exposed and other people seeing what we're really like. But the problem is, is the, the bitterness of sin, if you only look at that one half of the gospel, it eventually fades away. And that's why verses 29 and 30 talk about the idea of, of eating sour grapes. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Have you ever eaten something that is just so sour or so bitter that it just wrecks your mouth? We're talking about makes your teeth hurt. I remember eating like, like 18 warheads as a kid and my teeth just felt like they were gonna explode from the inside. And, and you're like, that's a bad idea. I should never do that again. Well, eventually time goes on and you kind of forget that it does that to your teeth. And what do you do? You just do it again. It's like eating Captain Crunch. It tears up the top of your mouth and you forget that until the next time you eat it. It messes you up and you have this sense in this moment of going, man, I shouldn't do that again. But just like that candy, our sense and our awareness of sin fades and we begin to think, you know what? It's just not that bad. Or we just never get to the other truth. And I think this is why some people reject Christianity. It's because they say, you know what? I hear the Bible and I just feel guilty. 
I hear people say, don't do this and and do that. And if you don't do this, you're gonna go to hell. And that's all we hear about what the Bible teaches. And we never get to the other side of the story because one half of renewal, one half of the gospel's work in us is we have to see how we failed. We have to see how we failed to believe. We have to see the ways we justify ourselves. We have to see the ways that we use other people and displease God so that we can see the beauty and the goodness of the other half, that God is that gracious. We are that sinful. He is that gracious. His grace abounds to us. So renewal is this renewed sense and understanding of the heart of God to forgive us in Jesus. And it's reminding us that you're accepted and you're loved. And that when you draw near to God, he's not letting you go. That the same God that allowed these things to be torn down is building things back up. In verse 28, we see this, and it shall come to pass that as I've washed over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. What God allows to be uprooted, he will give so much more and so much better and so much deeper in joy in him. So we see this this idea of renewal, this promise of renewal, but there's also an invitation to practice this in a new type of relationship. Secondly, the practice of renewal. The practice of renewal. We practice this way of pursuing renewal through right relationship with God, and we see that this is done in a covenant. Verse 31 talks about a new covenant that's made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And this is a new covenant being made with, with people who are kind of scattered and not really a people at that moment. And we see that in verse 32, that this is a covenant that's not like the one that he made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So the Lord had taken them out of Egypt. He'd freed them from, from over 400 years of slavery. And he says, I'm gonna be your God. You're gonna be my people. And I'm gonna give you this law that you can live by and you can flourish under. And it says here that they immediately broke it. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Like breaking a marital covenant. It's like when you're a kid, as soon as mom and dad leave the house and you're like, you know what? Do not wrestle, don't rough house. You're like, okay, great. And like, as soon as they pull out of the driveway, it's WrestleMania six in the middle of the living room. That was me and my brother. You don't listen. That's exactly what happened as soon as God made a covenant with Israel. Moses goes up on the mountain and God gives him this law and says, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. You're going to flourish under this law. And Moses has been gone for like 15 minutes and they're already like boiling down their, their gold, making, a, making an idol, making a golden calf. And Moses is so distraught by this. He takes the 10 commandments, which were on the stone. He throws them on the ground and breaks them, just disgusted by what he had seen. Here in Jeremiah 31, God says, I'm going to make a better covenant. I'm going to make a better covenant. It wasn't that there was something wrong with the old covenant. I'm going to make a more complete covenant that's even going to fulfill that one. And we see a few things different about this covenant compared to the old covenant. One is we do see it's more personal. It's not that personal faith never mattered. It's just emphasized more here. And the the positive side of verses 29 and 30, that each one would be accountable for his own sin. The positive side of that is that each one of us needs to approach God personally that your parents' faith doesn't get you into heaven, that 
if your parents went to church, it doesn't mean, if you had parents who went to church and were godly and raised you up to, to trust Jesus, praise God. But you have to take these steps yourself. It also means that if you didn't grow up in church, that doesn't disqualify you. It means you're not a second-class citizen. It means you have full access to a personal relationship with God. We see that this is not just an outer covenant, but it's an inward covenant. It says that he put, it in, put the law in their hearts. Verse 33, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. It means he's gonna take the law of God and internalize it. Just like we talked about last fall through the Sermon on the Mount, God wants heart level righteousness, heart level obedience, hearts that have been changed and shaped by who God is changed from the inside out, and that we've been given the Spirit to remind us of who we are. At the end of verse 33, I will be their God and they shall be my people. But ultimately, what, what's different about this covenant? What, why, why, why couldn't we just break it like the Israelites did there on the mountain? It's because it's not about us, it's about Jesus. Jeremiah 31, this new covenant is a new covenant that God fulfilled through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because if it was up to us, we would break it. We would break it again and again and again. And so we needed someone who would come and live and obey and please God when we could not. We needed a representative in our place. Romans 5 says, but the free gift of God's grace is not like the trespass. Talking about sin coming into the world through Adam. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespasses, death reigned through the, that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation, for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We have this life in Jesus and God is committed to our, the daily renewal of our souls to bring all, all of us under the sovereign care of God to more fully deepen our hope in him. And this only comes through life with Jesus. Richard Loveless says that spiritual life flows out of union with Christ, not merely imitation of Christ. Applying the gospel, seeking renewal is not about us trying harder. It's not about us looking at a list of rules and saying, you better live up to these or you don't match up. But it's what Jesus said in John 15, where he said, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me. So as a close up, I want to give three principles to help us seek gospel personal renewal. The first thing we need to do is we need to rehearse the gospel. Rehearsing is the idea of remembering and acting on. Remembering and acting on. It's a little bit like, uh, like rehearsing for a play. You have to remember your lines and you have to act off of those lines. 
We, we have some lines that we can rehearse and some, some truths that we get to rehearse that are rooted in God's faithfulness. If you look all the way back at verse three in uh, chapter 31, it says, the Lord appeared to him from afar away. And it says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Our personal renewal is rooted in the covenant faithfulness of God. It is rooted in his continued faithfulness that this was not the first time that God had bailed them out. You go all the way back to the, all these places where God was leading them to life. He said, I'm gonna lead you to a promised land out of slavery. In Psalm 23, he talks about, I'm gonna lead you out of the valley of the shadow of death and I'm gonna lead you to still waters and green pastures. And this is why over and over and over through the Old Testament, you hear the people say, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who led us out of Egypt. In the same way, we have some lines that we rehearse that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus. That our hope is built in the fact that we have a God who came to be our savior when we could not save ourselves and died when we should have died and rose again to give us life in him. We rehearse by remembering God's past faithfulness to us. And we tell ourselves this, not just in abstract ways, not that God just died for some people, but that God died for me and that God died for you. It's, it's taking the gospel and saying, God took my shame. God took my guilt. God was there with me in my darkest hour. I have a friend named Michael. Uh, he and his wife, Haley, had a little girl named Wren. And, uh, and Wren had a rare, a rare kidney disease, like one of six people in the entire world. And there's this, and for a year, for about two years, there was kind of touch and go constantly in the hospital trying to figure out, you know, is she going to make it? Well, her mother, who is like, or sorry, Michael's mother, uh, the child, Wren's grandmother, who's the, one of the godliest women I've ever met in my life, said, was a match for, her, for a kidney and donated a kidney to her granddaughter. And in fact, this got picked up on BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed actually had, wrote an article about this grandmother giving her granddaughter a kidney. And it's one thing for, for you to read that BuzzFeed article. It's one thing for me, even as their friend, to hear the story and our hearts to be warm and say, what a beautiful and wonderful thing to, to, to see. What a beautiful and wonderful thing to do. It's another thing to be Wren and receive new life. That's what God has done for us. In the gospel, it's not simply that God has done this for someone abstractly. He has done this for us. He has given us new life. So when we rehearse the gospel, it's our story. And we do this through understanding the means of God's grace given to us that daily we're invited to open God's word. We're invited to pray to a God who loves us, not just to check the box, but with the promise that God will make us new. We do this weekly. This is why we come together and we sing. This is why we confess our sins. This is why we hear teaching. It's why we take communion with the promise that God wants to make us new. It's why we do retreats. Coming up in October, we're gonna do an all church network retreat with our other three city and a hill congregations. I invite you to come to that because what God calls us to do when we are seeking renewal is he calls us to stop and to remember and to rehearse the gospel. And that's totally countercultural to stop, to slow down, to fight and push back on the hustle and the hurry because we just tend to want to outwork our guilt and outwork our shame and ignore it. But we've been called to slow down and rehearse this good news. And when I think about the monumental shifts in our world, I think this is the way that we pursue life with God is by pushing back on this idea that we can't stop, 
that we're bombarded, that we can sit in silence and solitude before the Lord. So we rehearse, but next we receive. When you think about this text, who's the one acting in Jeremiah 31? It's not Jeremiah, it's God. Jeremiah is simply receiving what God is saying and what God is doing by faith because every good gift is a gift from above. It's not something we earn. It's not something we work for. It's not something we deserve. It's freely given to us. And so we freely receive it. We just got back last weekend uh, from two weeks on the road. Uh, we drove down to uh, Alabama. We hit New York and D.C., went to Alabama to see my family, and then we drove on the way back. And so we, we, it's a long drive. I mean, from, Alabama, from New, uh, Boston to Alabama is about 20 hours when you take into account all the stops. And so you got to eat, right? And you get tired of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and things that you packed, and you eventually run out, and it's either forage for food or go to Chick-fil-A. Those are the two options because that's about the best thing you're going to find on the road. Well, every time we would go, I'd pull up my Chick-fil-A app, I'd punch it in and I'd order. And now I am a signature status member of the Chick-fil-A app. I have arrived. We've done it. And when you do this, you get all sorts of perks and you get all sorts of free points that you get to redeem and you get free food for the money that you spent. I have put many Chick-fil-A managers' kids through college, probably from that one trip, but that's not free. They've not given me anything free. I have spent my money and earned these points. And I think this is how many of us approach God as we imagine I need to reach some sort of status before he'll show me his grace. I need to have enough points and good deeds to redeem in order for him to show me his mercy. But when, when does the Bible say that God gives us his mercies? Does it say that God's mercies are new for us when we get it together? Does the Bible say that God's mercies are new for us when we've earned enough good brownie points in order to redeem them? No, it says God's mercies are new for us when? Each morning. This is why Hebrews says we have unfettered access to God. This is why the book of James says when we think we've exhausted the grace of God, there is more mercy for us. See, renewal happens when the gospel hits home and we begin to receive and internalize and believe that our sins have been forgiven. That's why Romans says that the, this begins with the renewal of our minds and it shapes us. And what you give your attention to, what you focus on is what makes you new. John Mark Comer says, what you give your attention to is the person you become. Put another way, the mind is the portal to the soul and what you fill your mind with will shape the trajectory of your character. In the end, your life is no more than the sum of what you gave your attention to. We need to give our minds and our attention to the gospel and renewal is this invitation to apply the gospel to anything and everything in our lives and receive that good news. And the thing about this is that when we apply the gospel to all of life, what does it apply to? all of life. It means anything that you're going through, Jesus is good news for. If that's the desire for a relationship, if that's how you work and you're frustrated, if that's the choices you're making or how you're choosing to live, the work of Jesus affects that and impacts that. So where does the gospel need to come home? Lastly, we take all this and we rest in it. We rehearse, we receive, and we rest. Verse 33, at the end, it says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. What does that mean? It means you're home. It means that you are with 
God. And so many times in the Bible, God promises that he is near to us. Psalm 91, he said that he hides us under his wings. Psalm 46, he is our refuge and strength in a time of trouble. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And the revelation picture at the very end of the Bible, what does it say? It says that God will be with us. It means we're home. What's that mean? It means we can relax. It means we don't have to be so tense all the time. It means we don't have to be so worried. It means we can take a deep breath. It means we can rest in the gospel because so often we still think we have to prove ourselves. We still think that our work defines us. We still think we need a relationship to make us complete or our past decisions define who we are or we're worried about the future. But the gospel invites us to come and rest with God, to rehearse what he's done for us and receive this good news. As we close, I want us to take a moment and I want us to reflect on this. I want us to practice this. I want each of us, for just a minute, I want you to think of one truth about God, one truth about the gospel. It might be that your sin's forgiven. It might be that your shame's taken away. It might be uh, that you're not alone. It might, I don't know what it might be. I want you to take that. I want you to rehearse that in your mind. It might be just one sentence. I want you to just, just take a moment and sit before God, not talking to him. I just want you to receive that truth and just rest in that. For some of you this morning, it may be the truth that you need to fixate on is that Jesus is inviting you into a relationship with him, that you need to give your life to him and you need to think about the cross that Jesus was nailed to a cross and his blood was shed to pay for your sins, that his death is for you. And what you may need to receive is the invitation to come to have a relationship with him. So let's do this for about a minute. It's gonna be quiet as we, as we do. Um, you know, Matt and Angie are gonna come up and play, play quietly behind us. And I want you to just take a minute to take time to rehearse part of the gospel, receive it and rest in it. And then we're gonna respond with communion. Let me pray and we'll do that.